Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist with the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. So I've been thinking about this topic for a few weeks now, ever since I read a Ross Douthat column. I was just interested in, in your take on it. So I'll do a little bit longer lead up today and then uh, tee it off for you. And the topic is about the U.S. Senate, the relative weakness compared to the executive branch, uh, why this is, uh, what are the consequences of this, and whether it can be remedied. Uh, on paper, the Constitution establishes a balance of powers. You know, we talk about in government class, three branches of government. The lawmaking Congress being the focal point in Article I of the Constitution, and the U.S. Senate being the more, more powerful body of that Congress. And uh, two or three weeks ago, and this is what sparked my, uh, my interest in this topic, conservative New York Times columnist Ross Douthat uh, wrote uh, a column titled The Two-Emperor Problem. And here's uh, just a quote from the beginning of the article. He says, generally, Donald Trump's Twitter beefs are an expense of spirit and a waste of breath, but a minority of them are genuinely edifying and illustrations, illustrations of his likely world historical role which is not to personally bring down our constitutional republic, but to reveal truths about our political situation through his crudeness and goading of others that might be harbingers of the republic's eventual end. And the Twitter beef he's referring to is the one between Trump and uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts. So his, his point was in the column that we don't really have, you know, the three branches of government we don't really have a non-political independent judiciary, and the, and the Kavanaugh confirmation fight kind of revealed this more than ever. Uh, but we do have a judiciary that has enormous power in that major policy questions get decided uh, via the interpretive function of the Supreme Court. And lately, whoever is the, the swing vote on the Supreme Court is the sole unelected wielder of that power. But at the same time, uh, presidential powers have increased substantially as well, uh, from war-making powers to, you know, the tariffs that, that Trump is, uh, has brought. So that's, this two-emperor problem that Douthat describes is this dual imperialism of the court and the presidency, with the Congress being the weak branch that's not filling in their role uh, in the balance of powers. And we can see this all over the place, but just the failures of Congress to pass meaningful legislation on things like immigration, uh, the failure to issue new uh, war authorizations, um, failure to reestablish power over you know things like tariffs, uh, and then uh, just to right before I hand it off here, uh, there was another thing that happened just this week, kind of as an added empathy, em emphasis on this theme is that 44 former senators, uh, including our former Arizona Senator Dennis DeConcini, uh, wrote a letter to the current Senate imploring them to be strong and independent. And here's just a, a small quote from their uh, letter. They're, they say, we are, to, we are at an inflection point in which the foundational principles of our democracy and our national security interests are at stake in the rule of law and the ability of our institutions to function freely and independently must be upheld. So here's the first question. Do you agree with Douthat's diagnostics, uh, diagnosis of the problem at the federal level, or do you have a different uh, assessment on the, on the situation? I would probably arrive at it in a, in a different way and um, also say that it occurred 
um, well before Trump's arrival. I think there's too much emphasis or blame on Trump for bringing this about. In reality, the Congress of the United States has been dysfunctional for a very long time. Uh, the Senate particularly uh, dysfunctional. Uh, but it is correct to say um, that by abdicating its lawmaking role, and I would say in part to pursue other political roles, um, the Congress, and particularly the U.S. Senate, has abdicated uh, authority to the president, um, and the judiciary has seized authority, uh, which was not contemplated by the framers of the Constitution. What caused the weakening of, of the Congress over time? When did it, when did it start? Uh, was there a time that it was strong and then it made a decision that it became weaker? It, it's occurred uh, gradually over time, and I think with the growth of um, the welfare and regulatory state uh, beginning in the 1960s. It occurred in part because Congress just began ceding authority. Um, you mentioned tariffs. Well, Trump is acting pursuant to a law that Congress actually did pass that grants the president uh, unilateral authority, uh, unrestricted, to impose tariffs uh, for what the president deems to be national security reasons. The Constitution is crystal clear that uh, regulating international trade uh, belongs to Congress. And throughout most of our history, Congress actually enacted uh, a range of tariffs on a variety of goods. Uh, at some point, it said, well, we're going to get out of that business and just turn that over to the president with unbridled authority. So that's one case of a conscious decision to say, here's some of that. In, in many other cases, Clean Air Act, um, setting standards for clean air was turned over to an agency of the executive branch rather than Congress saying, here's what the standards uh, should be. Congress began establishing, all, it, it wasn't just ceding authority to the president and the executive branch, it began uh, setting up independent branches of government uh, that neither the executive branch or the legislative branch uh, actually controls, the Security and Exchange Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, the Fed, to a certain extent, uh, is that, that way. So you've got all these independent regulatory uh, bodies there. So, so you, don't, you don't think that Trump caused this, but do you agree with uh, Douthat and the letter writers that we are at in inflection points? Are, are we at, is this uh, imbalance of powers that, it, that is growing? Do you see that as a threat to the Republic itself? The, the kind of the, the end game that, that Douthat foresees is, you know, we've seen, we've seen struggles between the executive branch and the, and the, and the courts before, but he, he foresees if there's a situation where there's a, where there's a power struggle that the, the courts have the, you know, quote-unquote authority, but the presidency has the power. And that there's, if there's ever, if, if the Congress weakens so much and you ever see a clash between these two emperors, as he describes it, the presidency is going to win, and then you've got the end of the republic. I, I do not perceive 
Trump to be that kind of a threat but, or, but, but or like unique in, the future, in this. In the future, is this are we are we setting ourselves up for you know because that doubt that says he doesn't think Trump himself is going to bring down the republic, but he's in his crudeness, he's revealing these fissures that that eventually maybe will. I, I, I continue to believe that there's self-correcting mechanisms uh, that uh, are actually at work now. And, and, um, yeah, just a couple I, things I, less. I, I think that the checks and balance systems that, that the framers set take time to work, um, but they've always worked, and I perceive them at work now. I mean, we, we have had openings in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we've had conservative judges who believe that the judicial power has been overreaching. Uh, and so I think we're going to be getting an internal correction in the amount of power that the judiciary uh, asserts. Um, Congress is on the verge of exercising its War Powers Act uh, authority uh, to end our involvement in the conflict in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe if the Democrats ever take over the Senate uh, that Congress, they will get rid of the filibuster rule. One of the reasons why there's huge dysfunction in the Senate uh, is uh, because of an internal rule and uh, the change in the filibuster from being a rare occasion that actually required physical exertion by those conducting it into a virtual filibuster, so anything of importance requires 60 votes. And I don't see... I mean, Trump is a... a uniquely corrosive force in our politics. But so far, I don't see him um, threatening to disobey the judiciary. He is frustrated with the legislature. He says intemperate things about it, but so far he hasn't. He's accepted the constraints uh, that both the judiciary and Congress have um, placed upon him. So you see uh, some of these examples of the, of the Senate and the Congress now rising to, to certain occasions to maybe reassert its, 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 its strength in a way that it hasn't done in recent history. Yeah, you, it, the, the, the resolution with respect to Yemen is, is um, a very good example. There is a movement in Congress to constrict the president's ability to impose tariffs um, uh, for national security concerns, to require that to be submitted to Congress for approval. If we didn't have the filibuster rule, I think that we could see a resurgence of, of Congress functioning in passing legislation. I think we would have immigration reform. Yeah, let's talk about that for a little bit because we've talked about it before on this podcast, but it's worth uh, bringing up again today that um, the filibuster rule, which is not really a rule in the Constitution, but it essentially makes it so that you have to get 60 votes instead of just a simple majority to pass anything in the Senate. And most... uh, most people would argue that the 60-vote requirement causes you to have to be more bipartisan because you need more votes altogether. And even with the, with the strong majority like the Republicans have now, you still would need five or six Democrat votes to, to get something done. So even, you know, even con, you know, constitutional libertarians like Jeff Flake argued in his book that you know, that's, 
that's one thing that's there. McCain uh, arguing uh, one of his um, last impassioned speeches about getting back to the old order, but he still uh, supported the the filibuster, but because they think that it it it, it forced you to have to be more bipartisan. But you think that it does the opposite effect. Well, I would ask the question: What are the examples of bipartisan legislation that has passed? because of the filibuster rule. Um, instead, what it does is to give an incentive to the minority uh, to stay together and not have any Democratic votes flake off uh, if the Republicans are in charge or Republican votes vice versa, because it gives the minority party an effective veto over any action. Uh, if something was likely to pass anyway, uh, then you would see Democrats scrambling uh, to get things in bills that are important to them, and it would allow the majority leader to negotiate with a few Democrats rather than have to negotiate with all the Democrats who are under extreme pressure to hang together in order to effectuate their effective um, veto power. But why, uh, given the fact that even if you have 52 Republicans, um, you could just do anything without any Democrat input? Why? Why? Well, that's you assuming get... you can get at least 50 Republicans to agree, and there is a diversity of opinion uh, within the uh, Republican caucus, and and there's been quite a few things. Um, where they haven't been able to muster that. So you think something like, I think, I can't remember what context, maybe it was immigration reform that we talked about it before, where they're having trouble coming to an agreement. I don't think there's any question that if the filibuster rule didn't exist, we would have seen immigration reform in this country um, a while back. And what about, um, I mean, what about we're about a week uh, week away from the from the budget showdown? Uh, how would how does the filibuster rule affect uh, budget negotiations? I mean, and this could, maybe it relates to also the question of the Senate taking back some independence. Uh, you think there's any chance that the Senate Republicans just say, you know, let's just forget about Trump and this five billion dollar wall demand, and let's just sign a a, a bill, a spending bill that that we think is sensible and just dare him to well, this, veto it? Th this is an excellent example, because I don't think there are 60 votes in the Senate um, for permanent funding for Homeland Security that either includes um, the money for the wall or excludes the money for the wall. So, for so, anything. so, so they will punt it. Well, and, and this is what's happened with funding. The most basic function of Congress is to fund the national government. And they can't ever do that. If you didn't have the filibuster rule, I am confident there would be 50 votes for something. I don't know whether it would be with the wall <laughs> or without the wall. But at 60 votes, there's not going to be enough votes either way. So this could be a way to not only pass more stuff, but probably reassert the power of the, of the body itself? Oh, uh, there's the no question. If, if the Senate was capable of passing legislation, 
it would have a much greater chance of recovering its um, authority. There is, however, a question, and this is sort of an unconventional view, um, as to whether they really want to do that. Part of the reason why we've had a reduction in the power of Congress is that it's no longer principally a lawmaking body. Um, committee hearings used to be and are supposed to be for the purposes of legislating. Mm -hmm. So you accept testimony related to legislating, legislation that you're considering. You um, have committee meetings where amendments are offered and votes are taken and all of this. Now they are just political theater. Mm -hmm. um, you, you bring in some businessmen that have done something wrong and everybody points their fingers at yeah. them and lectures them. You bring in some agency head who's had a problem and you uh, upbraid them and, and criticize them. Uh, and that is a safer political thing for members of Congress to do. I mean, you find miscredence and say and denounce them. Well, there's not much political risk in that. If you're actually doing your job in legislating, there are always winners and losers from legislation. It's it's harder work and it's uh, riskier and work. And now that we've gone that way, is there any is there any chance of reversing that? I mean, uh, is there a chance like a guy like Mitt Romney? Could come could come in and and affect some some positive changes somewhere in terms of the culture of the Senate. I think that there would be. I, I don't think we'll ever get rid of the political theater. It's just um, too beneficial uh, for the posturing members of Congress to engage in using committee hearings for that purpose. Uh, but um, there is the passage of a lot of legislation. It's just also mostly for show. So the House passes a bunch of stuff to make political points that they know that the Senate isn't going to take up. Mm -hmm. The Senate um, doesn't pass anything because it can't get 60 votes for very much. Um, again, if you got rid of the filibuster rules, so you made the possibility of passing things in the Senate far more substantial, I think you would get more productive activity actually legislating. And part of that legislating would be to recover authority which has been ceded or seized uh, by the executive branch. And, and, and ending the filibuster rule would just be a, a 60 vote right now? Like they, they could no, vote, it can, let's just end it? it? It can actually be ended by the majority with a simple majority vote at any point in time. When uh, the Democrats were in charge uh, but didn't have 60 votes, uh, Harry Reid got rid of the filibuster rule for executive branch appointments and uh, judicial appointments except for the Supreme Court. The Republicans just got rid of the filibuster rule with a simple majority vote um, for Supreme Court justices. And is the reason they wouldn't just a, a fear that they'll wind up in the minority and uh, maybe not having their same perspective on what the effects of that would be that you're sharing here? This is one of the reasons. Uh, the, the Republicans are actually not very comfortable being the governing party. Uh, it was a movement born in dissent. And I think in large measure, conservatives are more comfortable in dissent than they are in governing. So yes, 
among Republicans in particular, there's a sense that their destiny is ultimately to again be a minority party and they want to retain that power. I think they're being short-sighted because I think the next time the filibuster rule prevents Democrats from doing something that Democrats want to do, uh, they will get rid of it in a heartbeat. Not to get into this too much, some of the Trump drama lately, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, talk of impeachment has been getting stronger after the Michael Cohen sentencing and some other news coming out. Um, Do you see any chance, I don't know, of the of the Republicans in the Senate ever being willing to uh, to even consider impeachment based on the evi- based on the supposed evidence that's come out now, and do you think that the House Democrats might move towards impeachment even knowing that the result in the Senate would unlikely be a conviction? Uh, Republican House members did that with Bill Clinton. I mean, there was never a chance that Clinton was going to get convicted. And they knew that at the time. They knew it at the time, and they they proceeded. There becomes sort of internal momentum uh, that develops, and the anti-Trump sentiment among Democrats is so strong uh, that I have a real apprehension um, that there will be a movement. There is, uh, in the Cohen pleading, uh, a um, what will be considered by some Democrats an impeachable offense, uh, and that is an alleged uh, violation of campaign finance law by um, not disclosing in your campaign finance reports that you've paid hush money to um, former mistresses to uh, be quiet. I, I happen to think that that's a misreading of the campaign finance laws, um, but... Uh, I believe that Democrats will perceive uh, that uh, if Trump violated campaign finance laws, uh, that that would be grounds for impeachment, among other things. The only grounds um, on which I think Republicans in the Senate would be willing to convict is if there is hard evidence of collusion uh, between uh, Trump, his campaign, uh, and the Russians to undermine American elections. That's the only thing that I think would be an impeachable offense that would actually uh, result in a conviction and removal from office. And that, so that's the only uh, political reality you see as being enough to convince the Republicans in the Senate to move towards that. Uh, do you think they actually would move towards it if that, if that was there? I, even even I, after all the, you know, apologies and, and looking the other way and excuses and... That's different. This, yes, that would, yes, be, that I, would be substantially different, even if Trump support... I mean, even if no other political pressure changes, that would be enough to, to tip... Yes. So if tr- if Teflon, Don, even that's not uh, not enough to... That would be enough to bring... Bring him down. Yes, if Trump colluded, conspired with the Russian government to undermine our elections, I think he will be impeached in a heartbeat and convicted in a heartbeat. Um, so that would be a matter of Mueller bringing that, bringing that evidence. Yeah. Um, Assuming, well, 
as we've discussed before, I don't believe there is but, yeah, such, if, such such evidence. If evidence is presented, but but but, but that, that I be, that I do believe it wouldn't be trying to minimize it and and uh, no okay. no that that would well, be the end of the Trump presidency. Um, but anything short of that, like the Democrats might might bring the impeachment, but it would just kind of end where it, where it ended with uh, the Clinton. Based upon problem. anything that's out there now, so mm-hmm. anything which is knowable, mm-hmm. uh, if the Democrats proceeded to impeach on those grounds, um, I don't believe hardly any Republicans would support it. I mean, if that all depends on the Mueller investigation, why wouldn't what, what's stopping the Senate Republicans from enacting a legislation to protect Mueller from being fired? Because until, because there is not a perception that he is any in any danger of being fired, and the legislation that has been proposed uh, is unconstitutional. Um, there used to be a special prosecutor statute uh, that created in in independence, a legal independence, and beyond the reach of the president. Uh, That's not what happened in the Mueller investigation. He he is a functionary of the Department of Justice, which reports to the president. Um, And all of the legislation goes beyond simply saying, you can't fire this guy. It it includes other things that could result in a a runaway uh, investigation. so I, I don't think, I mean, the Democrats will try to make that part of whatever budget deal is enacted. So there's more of this to play out, yeah. um, and that might result in it. If, if Trump did fire Mueller before a report is finalized, that might change the political dynamic yeah. as well. But I don't think Republicans are going to be willing to give Mueller, uh, after the fact, a status that he doesn't currently have, uh, and which Congress on a bipartisan basis said, we don't want that anymore. I mean, there's a reason why we don't have the special prosecutor uh, legislation. It was, uh, you you routinely had prosecutors run amok. Mm -hmm. All right, final question here. I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. Uh, what happens first? Trump no longer president of the United States or Robert Sarver no longer owner of the Phoenix Suns? Um, since uh, Trump can be uh, ousted against his will um, and Sarver cannot, <laughs> I would predict that uh, it, it will be Trump who goes first. Do you have any strong opinions on the stadium uh, arena situation? I have mixed sentiments, and, and and in my previous life, I, I did uh, play a role in uh, getting public support for two professional sports facilities uh, in the Valley, the Scottsdale um, Spring Training um, uh, Baseball Stadium and the Diamondback Stadium. I think that um, properly structured a sports facility, uh, a multi-purpose sports facility can justify um, a public contribution. 
most of the time, the agreements that are reached uh, amount to an excessive subsidy to sp professional sports teams that ought to stand on their own. Yeah. I think the opposition is a lot more heated right now just because the Suns are so bad and and uh, no have been for a while and in the stark contrast to the to the success and the goodwill that uh, Jerry Colangelo brought brought there. So no question I mean, about I'm, it. I'm a little mixed too because I love the Suns. I've been a Suns fan my whole life, um, but it, it really just does not feel like the same the same Suns and, and the same franchise sometimes. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. This is the Political Notebook Podcast. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, any other podcasting app. Thank you.